In June 2011, Thomas Kale sat in conversation with Jason Moore at Mr. Moore's apartment in Manhattan. Topics range from developing a new musical to the process of transferring off-Broadway productions to Broadway without losing the immediacy of the initial production. They also address the challenge of maintaining longer-running productions to ensure they consistently feel vibrant and fresh. This is Hal Prince, and you are listening to In Conversation With. This Masters of the Stage program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and is presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. And here we are. I guess this is as live as it can be. Uh, this is Tommy Kale sitting down with Jason Moore. Hello, Hi, Jason. Tommy. Hi. Jason was nice enough to have me over to uh, to his lovely apartment, and we are sitting in his office. Yep, messy office. It seems like a, seems like a much cleaner <laughs> office than most people have. Um, and uh, thank you for doing this. For yeah, thank you. I'm excited. Slightly strange staring at each other without uh, a live studio audience, which is of course our background. I know. How do we? How are we going to know if this is working without any kind of audience response? There'll be comments posted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, we have to read it. And oh, I'll, I'll approve those comments. Okay. To make to make sure. Um, you know, I have to say, as I was thinking about folks that I wanted to sit down with, you know, this is, uh, I don't know, this is something that I was very much looking forward to because when I started working with Kevin McCollum and, and Jeffrey Seller and, and Jill Furman on Heights, you were sort of like our, our brother that was already going through it with yeah. them. Yeah. And so I, I met them in 2003, 2004, and the first thing, one of the first things we did was, you know, Kevin got me tickets to come see, like, the third preview on Broadway of Avenue Q. Oh, cool. And, I mean, I remember it distinctly. Um, I remember where I was sitting in the mezzanine. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Um, and just thinking, oh, wow, look what they've done. Yeah. And so you guys were something we sort of held up as people that had been in the process and yeah. kind of doing it. So it's it's really neat for me to get a chance to, to talk about that. And just it's it, it was the first opening I went to where I actually knew anybody involved at all. Yeah. And um, It's true. They, they are both of our sort of entry points into that world and right. to the world that we exist how, in. How now. did you meet them? When did they, when did they come into You know, I actually met them. It was when Avenue Q was one of those weird critical mass stories where I went in for that interview and sort of just knew everyone in the room from different perspectives. Right. But I knew Jeffrey and Kevin specifically because I had interviewed with them to be Baz Luhrmann's associate on Lobo M. And okay. I didn't get that job. Okay. But because I had sat down with them, you know, I had met them, yeah, yeah, so yeah. to speak. I was on their radar at some level. And so it's funny because Andy Blankenbuehler, who ended up choreographing Heights, um, went in to meet with, uh, with us for Heights because he actually wanted a different job from yeah. Kevin and Jeffrey. Yeah. And he was like, but this way at least they'll get to know me. Yeah. You know, and it's funny how often that, that seems to happen. Which is the truth. When, uh, that same interview, when I went in for Avenue Q, I knew Kevin and Jeffrey from that. I had worked with Robin, with Anna Luizos on another project, and mm -hmm. I met Robin through that. I directed a, um, a reading of Jeff Woody's play called uh, a Suicide Weather, and I had met Jeff and Bobby through another composer friend wow. at the BMI workshop. So that's what I mean by critical mass. You like, know, you've you know, yeah, you yeah. had that experience where you go into the room and there's a degree of, one, comfort knowing that you have relationships with everyone, but also that you can kind of, you know, you trust yourself even more in those situations. And so what was the process like? I mean, you met and was it, now we'll do a reading and see how it goes? I mean, what was early on when, when the project was forming? For Avenue Q, they had done <clears throat> many readings as a uh, television show, and then right. Jeffrey and Kevin and Robin um, 
uh, put an option on it to develop it into a larger theater piece. Jeff had been involved for a while, and they just they were interviewing several directors for you know ideas and kind of a, a direction to take it in based on the draft because they knew it needed work. And I think there were four or five of I don't know who else, but four or five of us who went in and sort of pitched ideas, and mm. it was just one of those. You know, magical. And what was your first step? What did? Because I know you went to the O'Neill eventually, right? What was what was prior to that? Our very first step, <clears throat> we actually we worked a lot in my apartment because none of us were working on anything else. You know, right. as you know, <laughs> during the day, kind of hammering stuff out. And we did a reading at Manhattan Theater Club that was just a little closed reading. And I remember it well because actually it was so unfinished that I narrated most of the story, like all the parts that weren't working yet. Right. We sort of, you know, we skipped over it and made it seem like it was working because I just filled in the gaps. And I remember sort of thinking, God, th this is where I'm so not an actor or a performer because I was actually really nervous that day. Right. Uh, and that was the first day where we had introduced a main storyline that we knew would work. And the, from that, the O'Neill was at that reading and that's how we ended up in Connecticut. Was the O'Neill the first time you heard it with an audience, a pub, like a general public? Yeah. The, the O'Neill is, is, is an opportunity um, to basically have a hundred people come and then you do it again the next day and the next day after maybe you've worked for a week and yeah. then you have another week to kind of work. So it is people that are paying a little bit of money to see something in development. So that was the first yeah. sort of outside audience for you. They know what they're seeing. Yeah, the people who have sort of no expectations and also no designs on like theater in general. I mean, the, the O'Neill audience is fantastic in that they're sort of trained to look at new work and right. see people behind music stands and that kind of stuff. But it's their, you get the most honest response, as we know, from the people that aren't in the community in a way. Was there a moment in that O'Neill time when you knew, when you felt that something, um, that this was different maybe than other things you'd worked on, or that there, it was connecting in a way? I mean, was there... I remember the first yeah. time um, when the puppet swore. Yeah. When, you know, uh, I don't know if I can say it. Kate the, the, says yeah, it was, yes. the, the F-bomb, yeah. I mean, I looked around, and we and everybody in that audience, we just said, oh, it's gonna, look, what, look what we're in for. Yeah. And we all just were like, we leaned forward a little further. There was just something about it that I remember distinctly the, the sound of that laugh. You know, you, generally there is that first like moment where you go, oh, that like is sort of like slapping the baby on the ass and it breathes and you're like, oh, what a relief. Right. I, because I had seen the songs work in different contexts, I actually knew those moments that were going to mm. work. My biggest fear is what always is, is does it work as an entire evening? And so my gut reaction to that is actually it was the first time we'd ever done it with an intermission. And so I knew that those songs worked well on their own in BMI workshops in an hour-long presentation. But for, to get people to sit down for the second hour is the, the real test. Like, does it, does, it, does it evolve in that way? Right. And there was, it, was a, it was actually, uh, I wish I could go back to college, that song that takes place. It's sort of the low point of the second act, which is an hour and a half into the show. And I could feel the audience connecting to the sort of emotion of it. That was the moment where I thought it could be something more special than just a bunch of laughs, that it was actually maybe a bunch of great laughs, by the way, but it could be an entire evening. Because that was always the question, can right. it be a full show? Right. And when did that question stop when you got to the Vineyard off-Broadway? I mean, because obviously there was stuff that, there, was many, there were many things, I love, you know, I know you were at the O'Neill, then it was Vineyard, then you're on Broadway, and then you won the town. <laughs> yeah. um, that's all that happened. It's so simple. Um, so from there, so at the Vineyard, you were uh, full rehearsal process fully designing the show, mm -hmm. and what's the, is there a, a large preview process down at the Vineyard before you open? Or there was, like, I think we had like three or four weeks at the Vineyard, and at that point I think we did have a sense that it worked as an entire evening, but still thought that it was probably mostly for people in their 20s and 30s, like who had had this experience recently, that mm -hmm. was part of the discovery at the Vineyard that it was more than that, but the preview process at the Vineyard was particularly harrowing because in our like 
second week, Rick Lyon had a really bad fall. I don't. Do you know the story? No. He had a really. Rick designed the puppets. Rick Lyon, who played initial initial, uh, roles of Nikki and Trekkie, and designed all the puppets, Mm -hmm. and was a real early important, you know, cornerstone collaborator on the whole thing with Jeff and Bobby, and um, and late in the preview period right before we started press previews he had a puppet on his hand and he fell and he basically broke his ankle and had to stop the show had to send everybody home went to the hospital with him it happened to be his birthday it was a really one of those just oh, well. aching events that you you love talking about right and now I love talking about. You feel well <laughs> it's, it makes me incrementally fine to talk about it because it had a happy ending which they don't always right. um, you know he was okay health wise but we ended up shutting down the show for a couple of days um, because we had critics four days later. So we shut it down for two days. I put him off in a wheelchair on the side of the stage, and we reblocked the whole thing so that the secondhand puppeteer would do all of his puppets, and he would do all the voices. So we actually had reviewers in with the New York Times. He was in a wheelchair on the side. We did the whole show that way, and no one mentioned it in any review, which it was like so the preview process is, in my memory, is all about that scary, terrifying accident that we thought was going to sink us all. That at least took your nerves uh, and focused them on something else. Yeah. Right? Like You can't really worry about the reviewers when you're just trying to make sure that... Just make sure it show. happens. Yeah. You know? Just make sure it happens. Wow. And, and then so... We didn't the, need a wheelchair, by the way. I did it on purpose. Um, <laughs> Sympathy. Well played. <laughs> you're like, oh, this old thing? Um, so, th- so then you were there. Obviously, it was, it was received uh, quite well down there. And then... What was the, and then the process of, of transferring, um, you know, that's always something that I think is, is fascinating to, to talk to other people about, mm-hmm. you know, because there's this sense that when you go to Broadway, that something has to grow in size mm-hmm. and something has to grow in scale. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something that, you know, Lynn Manuel and, and Kiara and, and Andy and I talked about a lot with Alex Lackamore, our music director, which is, we didn't want the show to get bigger. We wanted to try to go deeper. Yeah, um, totally. we tried to do something. Exactly. But, you know, we both had. There were both shows that have a certain amount of intimacy required yeah. to connect. Yeah. So, what was that for you? I mean, what, what were the things you wanted to tackle? You know, it's funny. That's a great way to say it because you, if it gets bigger, sometimes it it doesn't get even more grounded. Because in a way, if the tree is going to get bigger, you have to have deeper roots. Like just what you're saying. We, you know, we because Jeffrey and Kevin and Robin were involved at the vineyard. I would be lying if I said that we didn't have some sort of designs and dreams to go to Broadway. Mm-hmm. I'm always a little bit skeptical when someone's working on a musical and they say they don't have dreams to go to Broadway because pretty much all of us who work on musicals do. And I mean that still as like a rapt, excited theater goer. So when we designed the set, it was kind of with the intention that maybe it could move. But also because of the puppets and their scale, we were naturally limited to a certain scale for the set, right? So the set was 80% human scale on purpose, so it looked like humans had to go under doors and it looked like a jungle gym. If we had made it get any bigger, it would have been human scale and the thing would have gotten off. So in some ways there was something in the DNA of the show that kept it small. And like you say, the desire for intimacy sort of naturally kept it small. So actually the set that was on Broadway and has been in every other production is the exact same set, except that it had more tricks built into it. You know, it went deeper. There was stuff inside of it that made it... That was an amazing uh, set. It was. Anna did. I mean, there was a lot to accomplish in that. And she, you know, as you know, she's such a gifted special designer. And I think she's really good at surprise, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, that we were, we benefited from that. Yeah, well, I mean, in that, in, I mean, that show and the spirit of that show and that set, I think, mirrored it. You, you turned it another way 
and something surprised you. Yeah. And it was like a magic, and then you turned it back, and yeah. there was something else there that hadn't been there. I mean, I yeah. feel like the show kept on doing that. That's my uh, favorite thing to do, is to watch something that you think you know what it is, and then it transforms into something else. Right. And I think that's it's some of the hardest stuff to do, but it's the stuff I find most satisfying. Yeah. But then to, the transfer to Broadway physically wasn't that much different. Things got a little brighter and a little, you know, more... Uh, some things that we had smoke and we had things that we didn't have, some of those little bells and whistles. But in terms of crafting the piece itself, I think what we did when we realized at the vineyard that it had a little more like broad appeal, like, you know, when a 55 year old woman would come up and say, I still feel like I'm looking for my purpose in life. I just, my husband just divorced me or whatever. We kind of got the sense that, oh, it's not just about credit card debt and, you know, a, a degree from Stranford. It's like a kind of bigger idea. So we actually started to get rid of more of those things that, had a ballast in the 20, 30 something experience and tried to make it more universal. Right. You know, it, you know it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, to sort of follow this all the way through and make this about me. Please. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm actually dying to actually ask you the same question because um, didn't, I mean, the well, height set was, it, it was very similar and it benefited from a bigger frame. Yeah, I mean, you could, you it's, could see those big, beautiful pictures. It's funny, you know, um, Anna Louise, who designed both of these sets, yeah. you know, it, there, there are two things. One is to, to kind of bring this other thing around. I also um, was lucky enough to be at the final performance on Broadway of Avenue Q. Uh-huh. And at that point, I knew you a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and I so we knew each other more like through respect and like, right. yeah, you, you and I have had a similar experience. When do we get to talk about it? Right. I didn't dream it would be on tape, but I'm well, that, that is, that's how my dream, my dreams are always recorded. <laughs> yeah. Chris Nolan, take that. Um, but I, that to me was this other end of, uh, you know, because obviously it's a show that, and then there was the transfer, you know, back to off Broadway where, where it's been doing um, beautifully. But because I knew you a little bit more and I certainly knew some of the other people involved just a little more because it was, you know, the show ran and it's such a healthy run on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I also was able to look at you on that night and start thinking about, you know, the basically the fact that all shows will end. Mm -hmm. And that's something I remember, you know, you don't really deal with the fact that you can get it up and it runs. But everything that begins has an end point. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's actually something that Kevin McCollum, I remember saying to me. And, you know, there was a point when it just looks like it's going to be a line that goes out into the distance, but yeah. it's a reminder that the miracles that it exists at all yeah. and being able to sort of celebrate it in that other way on yeah. that final performance. And that's when I think, you know, I remember looking at that set and thinking, my gosh, I didn't even know it could do that. And here I was having seen it for the third or fourth time yeah. Yeah. and coming back to it. But there was a, a different kind of connection that I felt you know, just watching you sort of from afar, like dealing yeah. with what you were dealing with. I mean, closings are so weird, and I, you're right. You're, you are thinking so much about opening something, and since the norm is something doesn't run, that I think that's the thing. And then the ceiling cracks open, and that little ray of light comes in. You go, oh my god, I'm, I am so blessed to have something that might run for a while. Right. Then only, <laughs> like you say, then the, it goes off into the horizon, and you start to have different kinds of dreams and hopes. And then it does. It must end. You know, that's sort of what we, I guess, the ethereal nature that we love about theater. It's why people tell legends about, were you there that night when? Because it doesn't exist anymore. And it's, I mean, you know, we've both been blessed with that, but it's still very bittersweet when it ends. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and the fact that, you know, it will be done... uh, in Vegas and on the road in Helsinki and all these other, you know, then it becomes this other thing that sort of is mm-hmm. so far beyond, mm-hmm. you know, in the West End, you know, for you guys, I think that that's something, uh, you know, the the fact that theater is um, is devoured 
you know, in the world, mm -hmm. you know, not just these 15, 20 blocks, mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where you sort of, you know, you can get really focused on that, you know, and when you took yeah. it out into on the road, you know, and watching it play in St. Louis and Minneapolis and all these other, you know, towns where more people will see it there than we'll see it here. Yeah. You know, I have this <clears throat> sensation now, actually, that it's so much bigger than me. I have a, a different kind of, I don't know how you feel about heights. I have such a different connection to it now. Because so many people have inhabited it and it's been in other languages and other people have directed it. Like, I feel almost less ownership now mm. because I used to be so involved in everything. I think that happened to me the first time I saw it. I never actually saw it a production, but I saw it on, like online and it was, it was in Portuguese or something. And I thought, uh, that is, now it's much bigger than me. And it was a kind of, it was a strange but really satisfying thing, you know. I, I, yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's just one of these things that the fact that there's some little kid right now like practicing their tape monster, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, like, hang on, mom, I'll be down in a second. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, or like it's the, uh, you know, I'm just imagining, you know, I wish I go back to college being sung by some 11 year olds. <laughs> That's the thing. Like when I when the kids come into auditions and they're 17 and they're like, this is the most important musical of growing up, and I'm like, oh lord, what's happened? But it's a it's a real. I mean, it's it's an incredible thing. Yeah, because those of us who love musicals, you're like. Oh right, it's become that one of those things. Yeah, it's the thing. I mean, they had they sat with the cast album, and it just—it's yeah. not a record. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like me and Lamez. Right. <laughs> Boom! Look at that. That's called a segue. <laughs> That's called a segue. Um, so, so Lamez. Yeah. Huh? Let's talk about this. Okay. Yeah. So you were the uh, you were just a resident director there. You yeah yeah. From from when to when, and how did that happen? It happened. Um, I when I finished college, I moved to uh, Los Angeles actually for a while because I've always wanted to sort of do both uh, film and TV and. Theater and um, and I really miss the theater a lot. And I had been in the performance studies program at Northwestern, mm -hmm. which is essentially the adaptation of literature for the theater. It's an incredibly lucrative, you know, ticket to basically anything you want to do in the world. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you should write a show about that. Yeah, wow. So super specialized. But uh, Frank Galati was one of my professors, and so I I became his assistant and an associate on Ragtime because it was based on a book and a musical. And so when Ragtime closed, um, that was my first, you know, like first big job and also the first big taste. And you were of, in Toronto? I mean, you were... No, I actually joined the... I Stafford Arima was the original, and actually Stafford, it's another great, yeah, yeah. incredible director, Absolutely. he taught me Ragtime. I was the next one after him. Oh, wow. So it was like, I learned so much from Stafford from a directing point of view and also how to kind of administrate that stuff. And he's such a great politician and artist. He taught me the show, and I did the national tour. So I, I came on after, and I did the L.A. version that went uh, to Vancouver, mm -hmm. and then I also did the national tour. And then I also, that was also my first big taste of a show closing, because I like had my bags packed, was ready to go to Chicago. Garth was escorted out of the building. I read on the front page of the New York Times, and I thought, he's, he's going to be put in jail. I don't have a job. So that was actually how I ended up in New York, was I moved from L.A. to New York to do that job, to go to Chicago, you know, was well, out on my go. butt and was on unemployment, sleeping on the couch. So at that time, I didn't had no idea what to do because I had not spent any time in New York and didn't know anybody. So I just got my old computer out and started sending letters. And one of the letters I sent was to Cameron uh, saying, I knew they were looking for a, an associate director because of the 10th anniversary of Les Mis. And I said, I've just done this other big musical based on a book. <clears throat> and um, weirdly, my letter got through and got an interview and got the job. And so did you interview here? I or? did. I was living in New York, so um, they were rehearsing Oklahoma at the time, I remember, because I got this call from David Caddick and Peter Lawrence <clears throat> to go meet Cameron 
at one of the rehearsals of Oklahoma, <clears throat> and Trevor was there also. And it was like I was sort of ushered in <clears throat> and on a break, as, which I laugh at now because I think on a break they were bringing me on a ten or a five. It was ten, probably <laughs> a five actually. Uh, and uh, and so I met Cameron very quickly. I met Trevor very quickly, and um, because of David Caddick, they hired me to be the associate. And so. I mean, which is, I'm, I'm sure this is probably, this is a significant day in your life, so I'm just going to pause here for a second. You're like, all right, you have five minutes, kid. That's Trevor Nunn. Yeah. That's no, the, Cameron Mack. The story actually goes, Cameron came out. I met Trevor for two seconds, who doesn't really say much of right. anything. He was kind and generous, but he was directing a show. He had a lot of stuff to deal with, as right. we know. And uh, Cameron came up to me, and he said, what do you know about Les Mis? And I said, not enough. I'll never forget that, because I was like, that was my gut response. And he said, good answer. <laughs> well, I, I was like, and it, and actually, well, I hadn't thought that through, but I was like, because I knew that that you know, so many people who had done the show for so long, and I actually think that not to be cheeky, that was part of the reason I got the job is mm-hmm. they wanted somebody that was hadn't done the show before, so was able to come in and look at it in a different way. And, and how long were you there? God, I did that for like six years because it was my kind of great, amazing bread and butter job. Yeah, uh, for, and I even continued to do it a little after Avenue Q opened just to transition to help find the next person to replace me. Well, it's interesting, you know, you said something about, uh, you know, your relationship with Stafford and what, what he was sort of passing on to you. Um, and a couple things. One is just this idea of how information travels. Yeah. You know, any sort of mentorship be- among peers, you know, between the generations is, is a tricky thing. I'm someone who didn't assist. Uh, this sorry. is real. Yes, we are in the office. This is real. That's a phone call. Nobody important. That was Cameron. Who are we that kidding? It was zero one one four four five. Yeah. Um, so I was not someone who assisted a lot. I worked at a little regional theater for about a year right. and a half, and um, I wrote a lot of letters that went unanswered. Really? Yeah. And you know, directors that I, you know, I, I thought, oh, that's someone who does work. You know, maybe I can yeah. assist. I can. I yeah. can do that. And. Um, sort of didn't have that opportunity. I think one of the reasons why I like getting a chance to sit down with people is because I sort of missed out on this, you know, and yeah. this, this notion of uh, fellowship, which actually can exist among people that do this, isn't really there. But when you talk about Stafford, you know, talking about that, you know, it, it brought up two things. One is what's sort of not discussed um, about directing, which is the amount of management. Yeah. You know, especially when yeah. you're with a show that's been running or is running yeah. and maintaining a show. Yeah. And so, you know, that's something that if if one is lucky enough to have a show run, yeah. you have to learn that. But you sort of got to learn it's the idea of, of maintaining and managing a show. Specific skill. Yeah. Right? It's a really specific skill set. And it's a skill set that only exists when a show has a certain degree of success or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you say you didn't assist, and I, I, I have that same, sometimes I wonder, like, is that a deficit? Because I actually never assisted someone on an original show. So I was an associate for Frank, but he had done Ragtime before. So it was like remounting, which, as we know, is a very different creative right. process. And um, Les Mis was already up and running. So I, I, too, have never assisted a director from top to bottom. And so, in a way, having that kind of tutelage from Frank and from, most really importantly, from Stafford, not only was it to watch someone else direct and watch how they did it, which is the most the biggest thing you can gain from directing, I think, the idea of managing a long-running show and dealing with the unions and dealing with the kind of weird emotional arcs that take place and the you know infighting and what what a big show means when you have thirty-five actors. There's more stuff that can happen. Right. Um, you know that was a great way to um, 
to learn that stuff, which is which was an applicable skill many times over, even in a short run show, you know. And also, I always I look back on that associate um, because that is also very specific. Like you're saying, as opposed to assisting on one until it opens, being an associate once the director is gone, you have to apply someone else's values in your own style. So it helps you learn your own style, but you're also working within a system that already works so you know on Les Mis my experience of putting actors in the only variable was the actor and me I knew the show worked I knew the lighting worked I knew the set worked and very rarely do you work in such a like kind of isolated way so it was a great five years for me I I call it my boot camp with actors I had I put in a hundred people to that show and so like just to focus on that one how does each person learn and process and perform. It was a really kind of valuable thing that I've taken with me on every other in, show. And how, when you then <clears throat> had um, a show uh, like Q, which ran, um, and Shrek, which had a run, mm-hmm. how does that, and, and continues to, you know, and is now just opened in London, mm-hmm. how does that impact how you maintain the show and what your relationship is to a show is once it's, you know, is... Uh, something that will be there for a while. I think two things. I think I, I'm more mindful about how to set up a musical so that if it runs, if you're lucky enough to have that, that all of the systems are in place to help it run for a long time, meaning that no one role is too strenuous or too impossible to recast or those kinds of like kind of logistical things. Uh, but also, it's probably made me, in some cases, more, you know, one, recognize the importance of the assistants and the, the associate because they are your voice when you're gone or the stage manager, depending on the setup of the show. Uh, and also to go back and check it and know how to... It's a, The way, actually, sort of to skip the tracks for a second, the way it's informed my directing the most is to recognize that actually there are lots of choices that work, meaning that, you know what, Fantine can be played several different ways with these small different emotional colors and this gesture and standing on this line that the kind of, you know, like it must be this way in order to recreate, seeing it actually be done so many different ways freed me up to kind of be, I think, more playful or allowing of both the initial process and trying things out, but also to understand that as things evolve, that's part of how they evolve. Right. Yeah, you know, I I mean, the idea of, of finding the creativity beyond the the mounting of a show the first yeah, time yeah. Um, is is part of is part of the challenge yeah. um, because there is a great deal of it if you look for it yeah. you know once a show uh, if if it's going to run and whether it's 3 months or a month or a year or 6 months or whatever it is that that the the way that the show is then absorbed by the by the company and it becomes so much more theirs than yeah. it ever was mine. Yeah. You know, I sort of always think that um, the first day of rehearsal is like going to the beach, and I'm, I'm sort of like a little bit letting the water go on my feet. And I'm like, look, it's not that cold. You should come in. It's going to be fine. They're like, ah, it looks kind of cold. And then they sort of start wading in, and then they go out, and they're well off the shore. Yeah. And I never <clears throat> get off the shore. Yeah. I'm just sort of there saying, yeah. hey, it looks yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Do you need me to come in? Okay, you're okay? <laughs> and Waving your hands yeah, yeah, I'm, waving, I'm still here. And then there's all the way. You know, and so they sort of get further, yeah. further out. And my job is to maintain contact with them in that initial impulse that we had. Yeah. But at a certain point, like very early on, they're taking something and and uh, and owning it, and I and it's part of my job. I feel to 
to to hand that off to say these are some things I know. And yeah, and in some ways, yeah, that's like plant the seeds in the right place so that when it does grow, as it inevitably does, that it's growing in the right direction. Yeah, you know, like this this experience I just had on Tales. We only had two weeks of previews. This is Tales from the City, which Tales is now yeah, it's an ACT right now. Yeah, and we uh, only had two weeks of previews, and it was Fast and Furious. And actually, the, I realized that really the really good stuff was going to start to happen two or three weeks into the run because they were just starting to settle and even know where in the hell they were, you know, because it was such a, a right. quick process. So I'm going to go back in like a, a week and in some ways, I, you know, that's an important part of, I mean, of making sure that not only stays what you want it to be, but experiencing the beauty of how things do have to grow at night to night. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you were and Jeff Woody wrote the book for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how was it being back in the room? I mean, so much I realized, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the older and older I get, that I, it's really just about who I'm in the room with. Totally. You know, and so for, how did this idea come about? Was this something that Jeff brought to you or you? It was Jeff's idea, actually. He was sort of after a cue thinking about what he wanted to do next, and I think he wanted to have something that kind of originated from him, since the idea for Q had originated from other people, and he had a strong connection to the books, and it makes perfect sense in terms of sort of his sensibility and background, and he's got a really forensic puzzle-like mind, which is what you need for the book of a musical. And um, it was his idea to go to Armistead and get the rights to do it. And then he took it to uh, Jake Shears, the Scissor Sisters, and sort of put, and then me, and sort of put the team together in terms of uh, someone that he could felt like could, you know, work towards developing it. Um, and it was to answer your question about Jeff. As you know, when you work with people that you know and love, it's so it's so relaxing and satisfying. I mean, I guess you know you had worked with some people on heights before, so you you bring in this kind of level of trust and shorthand that makes it really satisfying, and it's more fun that way. Oh yeah, hi there. Working on the roof right outside my window. Yeah. You want to move in the other room? Do you want to? Yeah, we're gonna let's, let's, let's walk okay. and move. This idea that you you know you you studied adaptation and, and taking literature that existed, mm-hmm. and you know because Q was. Was, was not based on something, mm-hmm. um, but was sort of a very good idea <laughs> and, right. and inspired by, you know, a world we might have known um, through television. Right. But what was it like to sort of now, you know, having done Ragtime in the way that you did, mm-hmm. having then worked on Les Mis, mm-hmm. and to be able to come back to something then as you being in early and being, you know, the, the it's director? It's so interesting you bring that up. I had never thought of it that way. I'd forgotten that that, that part of my background connected to this. So, wow, that's interesting. And may have been one of the reasons I was attracted to it, just because it was inherently... Because it's a sprawling... I mean, it's, this yeah. is not like you're taking a 200-page book yeah. and trying to turn it into a... a yeah, show. the idea of adaptation, I find... Um, I mean, there, there are things that are always challenging about it, one of them actually being the audience's expectations. Right. But the sort of idea of how do you make something that's inherently on the page, how do you make it theatrical? So, I mean, it's what attracted to me first was just Jeff Woody, but um, also... Uh, and the story itself, but probably that challenge was something that was inherent that I didn't even. And, and what, I mean, in doing it in San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, it, this idea of expectation, because at the end of the day, it's all about managing expectations. Totally. No what it is, right? I had no. I did not know that. That is something they did not teach you. See, and now <laughs> that is now, something. When my mom listens to this, yeah. she will know that. Yeah, because <laughs> I don't know how you would teach that. Because also, in some ways, I guess it's also maybe it's the commercial theater for a lack of I hate, don't always love that term but yeah that they're what it, and it's, you know what it can be true in classics and regionals as well what's the expectation of a revival or a classic right. or, or, or a familiar title it's a big big deal and you know this idea of how to create a world that the audience understands will 
connect them to something that they already had a relationship with. Yeah. You know, with tales, mm-hmm. that's something that people feel very strongly about. They had their, mm-hmm. you know, and reading a novel is a very, uh, it's a very individual experience. Mm-hmm. You don't do it straight through. All right. right. I mean, you you read and you absorb what you get. You put very it. personalized experience of how you come to that, come, come to reading something. And, and so, what was that like doing? I mean, did you did you sense you know in those early weeks, especially, you know, I guess it was all early. It's still early weeks out there. Mm-hmm. They just happened to quote unquote open. Yeah. Um, you know, what what was that audience? I mean, that was coming was people that grew up with the book. It's people that had the book yeah. passed down to them. I mean, did you have? Well, I think in general, what's what is good about a, a adaptation of a novel is that because it, it does exist in people's minds, and depending how much they remember, it's more a feeling and something they sort of remember about the stories, but they may not have any visual attached to it yet, or they may acknowledge that oh, this is the version I had in my head, but right. they're far more willing to accept a new version because in some many cases, it would be the first time they would see a visual version of, of or a musical version of what they kind of might remember from the book. Right. In this particular case with Tales of the City, there was also a mini-series. So people actually did think of Laura Lenny. <laughs> and so there was this kind of extra, like, oh, this is what the characters look like. This is how they talk. This is what 28 Barbary Lane looks like. So I do think that, in general, for adapting literature, there's more um, gray space, there's more imagination space, that if you do define something that's, you know, that's clear and exciting and theatrical, people will go with you on that journey quite quickly without feeling tethered to the books, because it's usually a vague memory. In this particular case, I think we were also contending with um, the the visual image that some people had had from the miniseries. And and on another side of that was Shrek, mm-hmm. right? Which is exactly something that the same issue. Everybody in the world has an idea of what that looks yeah. like because they only you know the people that knew it from you know the books it was a, yeah. was a limited number. Yeah, everybody had exposure to mm-hmm. that ogre, to that mm-hmm. voice, to mm-hmm. Fiona, to all those things. So that that obviously was a completely different proposition. And, but it, you you know, but it's the same person having to do it. It's so the same. Yeah, how did it's that? The same. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Is that expectation? I mean, as you just said, we manage expectations in all ways. You know, what do people see when they sit down? How big is the theater? How much of you, you know, mm-hmm. how do you, how, how loud is it? All kinds of things. But in these cases of, of characters that people are in love with, there are certain expectations that you can't ignore. One of them for Shrek was we did several versions of that character, makeup tests and designs, where there was sort of like a half version or a slightly uh, human version. <clears throat> and a lot of the creative team had kids and they just came in and they're like, that's not Shrek, right? Because Shrek already stands on two legs, he has two hands, he has ears. He's more human looking than, say, Simba, right? Mm Because Simba's a lion. So there's this. That would never work as a musical. (laughs) I hope someone's not foolish enough to try that. Oh, thank God they did. (laughs) But I, but I think that in that way that there was actually something. It was close enough that the expectation of what Shrek looked like actually did make us want to make it look like Shrek Mm because it felt like too strong of an idea to try and make him look like something else. For us, it didn't work. It might have worked for someone else. But if you're doing all animals or all um, space aliens or when there's something that's like there's a bigger gap between the kind of what 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 the actor looks like and what the thing looks like, there's more space in which to play, basically. And also in Shrek, we had, a, even though he was short, he's a human character, Fiona's a human, and we had donkeys and we had cookies. So finding the language of that to sort of deliver a world that audience would expect visually, because that's what probably most people remember, is the way he looks, because they've just also seen Shrek 4 or whatever. That was one of those cases where um, the decision was to deliver that expectation for those four characters and then play with the things around it. Right, and then there's something, too, where 
you know, you're dealing with uh, a character who exists not only in our minds, but has been branded yeah. in, in exists in, in the world of, uh, yeah. of a larger corporation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I saw an ad for... Uh, you know, pull up diapers yesterday featuring Lightning McQueen from Cars. Yeah. You know, and now that I have a three and a half year old nephew, and yeah. all he can think about is when this movie's coming out. Yeah. I was like, is it because he put on these little diapers and yeah. saw Lightning McQueen and raced around? You know, there, what happens sort of, you know, if you have a show that that runs on Broadway and, and works, like everyone knows what the Phantom thing looks like. We know the, you know, the picture, mm-hmm. you know, from Les Mis, but like they're not on underwear. You know, what right. I mean, like, they're not on tennis they're shoes. They're not that. Yeah, it's just, it's a very different, uh, you know, uh, level of absorption um, whereas Shrek was something that exists you know it's in it's in a happy meal you know yeah. and, and so navigating that negotiating that I mean that must have been a, a very I mean, particular the, project in full circle I kind of and I and I think about heights a lot in terms of this example is my favorite experience now is to sit in a show where I have no expectation I have no idea what's going to happen next and I don't think it's an accident that that Avenue Q um, in the Heights Book of Mormon those things when people sit down and have no idea what's coming, the story, they don't necessarily have a visual associated with it, including a star, a movie star or TV star, that there's, that's the most open canvas and the most open heart way that an audience can sit down to a show. And it's something I'm thinking a lot about for like future projects is, you know, it, it is that expectation in what ways in varying degrees does it, you know, help or hurt your process with, in terms of connecting to a story with an audience. And, you know, when you had mentioned Les Mis as something that was an important part of your life, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the shows that, uh, you know, sort of connected, connect us to the theater whenever they happen for us, um, you know, it's obviously something, you know, people talk a lot about, you know, um, the original idea or, and what that means, mm-hmm. but what were the shows that you know, when when you were growing up, what were the I mean, what were the shows that that spoke to you? Were they were they new works? Were they uh, you know th- what what reached you? And you grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Yeah, I grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I I actually didn't ever see like a big a touring production until I was sixteen, and I'd never seen a show on Broadway till I was eighteen. And, and what uh, was that so. Show? That show, actually, it was the revival of Amos Behaven, but the second show I saw on Broadway was Into the Woods, so I, in my, like, theater brain, I think that the first show I saw was Into the Woods because that was the most transformative experience I had. Right. Although, at the end of Act One, I was like, that was amazing, and I got up to go. <laughs> Arkansas. Right, right. Can't take it out of me. And they're like, no, that's the second act. So, like, the giant's <laughs> coming to the woods? Wow. That's impossible. So, um... So my only experience in Arkansas was soundtracks, which is, which is true for a lot of people, although now not, that's not true with the internet. But for me, at my age, that was it. And in Arkansas, that was the only access I had. So I do think that I was probably more uh, aware of, like, Al- Les Mis was a big album for me because I was, whatever, 11 and 12 and discovering it because it felt new and people were talking about it. It's probably also the first time I realized that musicals could be in the present public zeitgeist as opposed to sort of vaguely knowing what My Fair Lady was. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I love the movie Grease. I love I love movie musicals, really, because that was my access to them visually. Um, and then, uh, so, you know, Les Mis was a big one when I, when I finally discovered Sondheim and the ability to... Uh, to sort of really listen to those albums again and again and become familiar with um, 
become familiar with that work, that was when I became truly obsessed, you know. And, uh, and, and, and Sunday in the Park with George on great performances, PBS. So were you, were, were these, in, did you, did, did your folks, did you, did you have brothers and sisters, you grew up with, I mean, who, who was introducing you to this stuff? Was You know, I, when I was a kid, I was six years old, and my mom used to tell this story all the time. My, the University of Arkansas did have a children's theater component, and um, when I was six, they had auditions for Peter Pan. And um, I just stood up one day, she said, and said, I want to do that. I can do that. And so I, because I had played, of course, Oliver Twist at four in my preschool. They're still talking about it. Still. There are pictures. (laughs) Um, And so I went in to do it, and I liked the children. I liked that experience. I was in, it was awesome to be, you know, in a show. And so that's, I think, how I caught the bug. So it wasn't really from anybody in my family. Although my grandmother played the piano, and I, and when I was about eight, I started learning to play the piano, and I think that was another way that I could enjoy music and express music. And very quickly, those two things started to emerge. I learned to play on my own on the piano by memory, and I thought, "Uh oh!" I look back and I think that was probably the turn in the road. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just creating the visual, and we're moving on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, it's there. There's a piano right there. That's how it works. And so are you a musician as well? Do you I play, play? Yeah, I'm not a great player, and I would never play in front of any professionals, which means, you know, never never let people know. But it, it helps to be able to count off music and read music and talk about music. It's been it's been really great, actually. And so where, and when shows did come through, where did they play? When, when you saw- Tulsa, Oklahoma. At the, you mean in Arkansas? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, I finally made my mother drive me uh, at 16 to see the tour of Dreamgirls at the Williams Center, which is where all the ice skating and shopping was. So I actually went by myself while my mom went shopping, and I just sat there and cried and cried and cried. So that was probably the first time. That was when I was like... Oh. And you had the album, I mean, at that point? I mean, or what was no, it? I didn't know it, actually. I went not knowing it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the first times it hit me kind of like head on, you know, that experience when you go see a show and you don't know it. And like I was saying before, I have no yeah, expectation yeah. except that somebody, I heard it was good. And uh, yeah, it kind of hit me in the face and in the sternum in that way that we all kind of love musicals to do for us. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, as much as um, something can be on diapers and uh, put into the world, at the end of the day, and it we all know it's it's word of mouth, right? It's mm-hmm. are people going to your yeah. show yeah. and walking out and saying, not only do I know someone who would like this, but I'm going to bring them back. Yeah. But I'm going to get yeah. them tickets, you know. and Because I want them to have that same emotional experience right. that I had. Yeah. You know, and just, and to think about, you know, you seeing a show at a time when, like, you weren't Googling Dreamgirls. No. You know, you, you weren't, you know, yeah. downloading and, and, you know, walking around on your iPod. Like, it got, somehow it got to you. Somehow it was in the, it started in New York mm-hmm. and kind of got into the world enough yeah. and to, to land there and to have you bump into it. And that's something that I think, you know, when, uh, you know, Heights is a show that is very much about, you know, this, this place in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yet we knew if it was really about this place in New York City, about these folks, then it's actually, you know, it's through that specificity, right? Then, then everybody finds their way in. That's why it's universal. Um, and so one of the really exciting moments um, for the show, once it was working uh, pretty well in New York, when it existed and then it was whatever that was, people would come to town and maybe they would say, I want to see this and I can't get into that and they come see our show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I knew we were going to go out and onto the road and, and, you know, this idea of maintaining a show because it's, you know, I mean, it was, it's, I mean, it was the, it was the first thing 
that I did that took up that much of my life, that yeah. much of my yeah. energy. That yeah. I, you know, I don't really remember myself before. You know, what I mean, like yeah, no, you know, I mean, know. Like, there are these parts of our lives, right? Totally get it. And and so I remember saying, you know, not only is creating this tour important to me, but going and watching it happen. I. I, I um, had a conversation with Michael Greif, who I didn't know very well, but just knew from around a little bit once, and it was right after um, the, the Tony Awards in 2008, and I was, uh, I, was, I was away, and I hadn't been able to see the show since all the, all the nice things happened. And, uh, oh, wow, yeah. And I remember talking to Michael, who was someone that you know, I had great respect for, yeah. and, and Rent, obviously, a show that had great impact on not only totally. me, but Lynn, and, and everybody that was involved with Heights. Me too. And... And I remember talking to him because Michael was somebody who directed Machinal. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a, a revival that he sort of found a way to uh, breathe life into mm-hmm. that kind of put him on the map, in, mm-hmm. you know, in his words, paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. And I had done something a little bit different in that it was, a, it was an original show. It was a new show. And we were talking about this idea of, of two things. One, revivals and new work, yep. which is, you know, the question that, you know, one finds themselves asking occasionally about how to try time. to tackle that. Mm-hmm. And also I remember saying I didn't, uh, I didn't want to be the person that was hanging out at the theater too much. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, at your you're, own you're, show? Yeah, my own general. show. Like, oh, I, you right. know, I wanted to let it be what it was going right. to be. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely the person that I, I realize that at the end of the day, I'm like the cool uncle. <laughs> like, you know, I don't like, you know, I hang on out the with beach. the, ca- yeah, you know, on the beach, <laughs> wearing awesome. jean shorts and socks. Waving. Yeah, yeah with, a, awesome. with a terrible tan line. I want to join you there, please. <laughs> Does anybody else want to come to this beach? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I thought that there was something where, you know, I wanted, to, again, this sort of transference where it was, it was so not mine. I, I was a part of it, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to, like, be there in a way that I felt like I was encroaching or in, in, encumbering on that in any way. And Michael actually was someone you know, through his experience of a, of a, you know, show that obviously made its way into the world and that stayed there and, you know, continued to stay there, who, you know, was very uh, sort of cool and generous about saying, you know, you're allowed to participate. You know, yeah. you're al- it's okay yeah. to go and watch the, the, you know, the finale and see that last five minutes and listen to the crowd and have them feel that. And, and that's, that's something that you're allowed to be involved with. The cast gets to feel that. The music yeah. director gets to feel that. The writer and the director should feel a part of that as well. And I think that, I think that the sort of emotional family unit system of the theater wants that as well. I mean, I, my experience of going back was that people were n- n- often need, need the uncle yeah. to show up and that that's satisfying in both directions. And so, yeah, to, to own it and to be a part of it and to stay connected to it, as we were talking before. I mean, I actually, I remember asking a lot of questions about how Michael maintained rent because one, my associate director on Les Mis, who took over from me, was also the associate on Rent. And also because of Jeffrey and Kevin, I knew a bit about how he maintained it. And, and you know, it, I got the sense that part of the reason it was so good all the time is because he was attentive and he was present. And that that, that cycle of, you know, kind of emotional energy stayed, um, stayed connected and therefore stayed grounded or with his original intention. So I think it's, I think it's important to keep yeah. that life force going, whatever way that is. And, and, you know, there were times, you know, I was out of town for four or five weeks, right literally the day after the Tonys, I went out of town. Wow. Um, was and, that weird? Like, uh, like, yeah, it was, it was a little bit weird. I, I was, um, it was very important for me to, to do a play um, yeah. again after, after Heights. And so um, I had the chance to go up to Williamstown and I had this play called Brokeology. Of course, yeah. And um, I was, you know, the Tonys were on a Sunday. And I was on, and it was a, you know, obviously this kind of amazing euphoric night that ended pretty late. 
and eight hours later I was on a train to the quietest place yeah. you know I'd ever been. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and, and then I, and I had a job to do. And that Tuesday morning, you know, the next day I had to go at ten o'clock and meet a group of actors um, and read through a play that I'd never heard read out loud and go and make something. And it was... How did that inform your experience, having just, like, had this crazy night on Sunday? Um, like, your experience of it, making... I mean, it's definitely a good way to go to theater camp. Like, if you're going to go to theater camp, yeah. going straight from the Tonys <laughs> is... I mean, Highly if you ever have a chance to do it. Um, the interns really picked me up fast. Yeah. <laughs> and then dropped me. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was fantastic, because it was just a reminder. It's like, okay, good, you did that? Yeah. Yeah, the most Great. instantaneous kind so of... So now let's go back to work. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, and, and that experience up there, which is connected to Heights in such a significant way for me. I can't mm-hmm. think of mm-hmm. that first day of rehearsal without um, sure. sort of the, the context. And it was and so that's why you, that's what you mean. You're away. So then coming back to the show. Was exactly. Like big, and I knew I had to that? be away. I mean, I knew I was going to be away for five weeks. I had to go and make something else. Yeah. And I remember going back and seeing it. You know, you sort of have this idea of what it's going to be. And, you know, you, you're talking to your you know, friends there. You know, and Lynn and I are very close. And it was kind of this you know, strange thing where the composer is in the show. You know, I don't, yeah. I'm not the guy who's, like, calling the cast. I'm like, hey, guys, how's the crowd? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I talked to Lynn a lot. And, you know, and just that energy that I could sort of feel through the phone, I wanted to be able to participate sure. in that. And so having this conversation with Michael when I was up there um, sort of allowed me to go back and absorb it as well. Sure. And, you know, when I was in town, I mean, I was at Heights once or twice a week. I'd try to watch every week. Yeah. And then, to, to your point about sort of maintaining and just kind of being there, I would get there one other time a week at 6.45 and just stay till curtain. Yeah. Just to be backstage, yeah. just yeah. to be around, just to be able to knock on a door and check in. Yeah. And if there's something I needed to watch for, or just, just being there to participate. Yeah. And so when the show went out on the road, I tried to go see it every three cities. You know, about wow. like every month or, or maybe five weeks. Did you have an associate director that was helping you maintain, or um, did you? Yeah, I, I did. Um, so you guys could double team it. That was part but, of how you kept it. But the, but once the show opened and the associate isn't necessarily on payroll anymore, oh, you know, okay. it was the kind of thing where they were like, "Well, why don't you go out?" And well, I then wanted you to were go out. The so I was single person so I sort that of was doing that. Yeah, so like in town, I was doing it through the whole process once it opened. But then um, we have a we had a production supervisor mm-hmm. who was a dance captain who sort of continued to just grow in, in his roles. Who would go out, you know, about a year into the tour. But for that yeah. first year, you know, I would go out and you know be in St. Louis and see if it worked in St. Louis and Minneapolis and Sacramento, and, and it was really fantastic because I, I it made it very clear to me. Um, you know, how significant the road was because, you know, this is, it's a show about where you're from. Yeah. And it's a show about, uh, sort of trying to identify your place in a family. Yeah. And so to be able to wake up in your own bed and eat at your restaurant and go see the show and then come home to your house and not have to get on a plane to go to New York and get, no, you know, to see it in your own hometown, I realized was a whole other level of, yeah. um, you know, of, of, of just connection with the show. And when we were in, we were doing the show in San Francisco, and um, there was there's this group of kids, um, and you know there's a big bridge that's in the background of the, of the set, and we did this talk back with the kids, and they're like, "Oh, so cool to see the Golden Gate." Yes, they totally projected that. And that was that. it, like whatever it needed to be, and yeah. that that was just this moment where it's like you see what you need to see, and you find your way in. Listen, that's 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 what you dream of, right? That you create something that's enough specific enough, but blank enough, then that everyone's experience can be funneled through it. You know, that's I mean, that's that gives me chills to hear that. Well, it, it was story. yeah. There were there were a lot of those moments where you know. 
when I realized, you know, again, you talk about how something is so much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. Um, when we went to Puerto Rico and Lynn came back into the show, um, Lord, we, <laughs> I was, I, I, was imagine. I was there for the first night, um, when it, when it opened there and it was the first professional equity production to play Puerto Rico. And, um, you know, Lynn, when, when Lynn won the Tony Award, he pulled out this, the Puerto Rican flag from his pocket. Oh, God, that gives me goosebumps. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, you know, it was front page news in Puerto Rico. Yeah. It wasn't about the award. It was about this boy holding this flag, representing, you know, who he was and where his parents came from. Which is the show. Which it's is, like which so is the show. reflexive. Yeah, I mean, it was... can't even deal. Damn that, yeah. Manuel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we were... Uh, we were talking before the show that, that night. We had like a little rehearsal down there and putting him back into the show. And, you know, for the, the, the final bow for Snobby, he kind of does, you know, comes across and then comes down. And Lynn, like when we were in L.A., like would put on like a, like a funny Lakers shirt. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he, yeah. he, he, he was yeah. a guy who liked to make a, like, you know, a little splash. Yeah. And so we were talking and he said, he said, do you have a flag? And he said, yeah, they actually gave me this like Olympic size, like you just won the hundred yard dash flag yesterday. <laughs> yeah. And we sort of didn't say anything after that. And that was like at 15, I was like, all right, I'm going to go out there. And so we do the show and you know, the last word of, you know, the show is home. Yeah. So now God. it's like, just everyone, it's just like a, like, it's just a lot of waterworks and, um, and they do the bows and it's, you know, I kind of, I kind of imagined it uh, as turning the telescope around. It's like, this is the show for the people that stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. about the people that left. Yeah. And so when Lynn came down, like, wrapped in this flag, like, heaving, sobbing. Oh, God. And 500 flags came out in the audience. Oh, God. Like, that, we didn't know, I mean, just, like, just from everywhere. And it was, you know, it was one of these things where it had become something so... Oh, so much bigger. So much bigger than... Transcendent. And, I mean, that is, yeah, was, that is, I mean, I don't know how yeah, you could have an experience like that that is so specific and special and beautiful. I mean... But that is that is it, right? Like the kind of the sublime nature when a musical is firing on all cylinders like that, and to be that relevant in the moment—that's the other thing. It's like I love hearing they wore a Lakers shirt in LA because you know reminding people that it is happening now and it is right in front of them. It is a live band. You know those <laughs> those little reminders are the kind of sense of community that people go to the theater to begin with for. And so you know the way, however we can deliver them, no matter how beautiful and spontaneous. Or, or huge like that. I mean, it's it's the reason people go. God, I wish I was there that night. <laughs> well, that would the, the, be amazing. The thing that I that I also love about you know, working in the live theater in that way is that they had to do it the next day. Yeah, like they, <laughs> you have that. Yeah, and it was a Tuesday, and like yeah. at eight o'clock the next day. Yeah. No, Matt and I don't. We did a five show weekend. Um, like they had to go back out there and do it again, and each night was its own thing. Sure. That was going to there was only one first, right? I mean, sure. that's the thing too. There's that moment, you know, when you're working on a show and you realize in that whether it's that invited dress or that first preview, like you're giving it away. Yeah, it will never be this thing of just this group in this room. Yeah, um, and then it becomes something that is informed by the audience's energy, and you got to go back and do it again. And, and it's, you're still giving it away because it'll never be the way it was that night right. with that audience in that room. And so there's this constant sense of kind of like. Releasing, I mean, owning it and releasing it and owning it and releasing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's part of why we're crazy enough to all chase it down. And, and yeah. so whether it was in New York or Puerto Rico or St. Louis or any of these other places, you know, that was the experience. Yeah. You know, the, the reason why people save their playbills, yeah. you know, when they go see Q or Chorus Line or Dreamgirls or what have you, is yeah. that's the night I was there. Yeah. 
And when this happened, it happened for me. Yeah. And if you really do it right, everything else goes away. And it's about that collective experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this is the only this is the only way it could have happened, right? This way, this night for me. It's not really like this every night, you know that that sort of feeling. But like, like so I was saying, that's that that nature of that it is sort of it's ephemeral and transient. That you do that's how you remember it, and you create those beautiful memories. So when people say they saw Liza win or they saw Cheetah this night, you know, there's that kind of there's the lore that goes with musicals, with plays as well, but particularly with musicals about the kind of, because music can be so transcendent and sublime like that that you you know you tend to have them seared into your brain if you love them. Yeah, it is interesting because you've you've done a, a, a number of plays as mm -hmm. well, and you know there there was a quote from somebody you know that good theater makes you walk outside and forget where you parked your car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you, there's, there's there's something slightly disorienting about it. And mm -hmm. I remember seeing Brian Dennehy do his salesman, mm -hmm. and actually had that happen to me. Like yeah. walked outside like a little bit stumbly, yeah. and was like, oh, I, I did I drive in? You know, I mean, I couldn't even remember that. You know, I. But that experience of the um, the collective of making a musical is a very particular yeah. thing, right? You know, because people say, well, you know, the difference between directing a play and a musical, like, it's storytelling, and we all know that. But it's also the people to, pro to solve the problem. It's a smaller group, mm -hmm. right? You're not mm -hmm. turning to your choreographer or to your MD, be like, hey, can you help me out here? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's you and the playwright in a very different way, and you and your designers. It's also probably why those like what you're saying with with. The Night of the Salesman, because I had that experience with her, with Elizabeth Franz at that mm -hmm. night, where it, it often is about that one person or that one performance that makes that liftoff happen, whether it's Judith at the end of Wit, or whether it's, uh, whether I saw Cherry Jones in Good Person in Setswan, The Goodman, it's one of those moments where I realized thinking, oh my God, I feel like she could levitate, you know, it's so sort of magical right. that in plays, those moments tend to locate on it. Like Elizabeth Franz on the grave in that. Yeah. Which is a part that I don't even remember from reading the play. Yeah, I know. I mean, but there that was something about that. I mean, it was sort of like that energy floats around, and sometimes it gets channeled for the audience member at a different point. But you know, that that kind of experience of five hundred flags of, at, in Puerto Rico is very. It becomes really concentrated on usually one performance or maybe two performances and moments like that. This is why when they're transcendent in plays, too, they are sublime. Right. Well, sir, I think Sublime is a good place to, to stop uh, wasting your time and let you get on with your day. Listen, this has been great. Thanks, but, Tommy. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. This Masters of the Stage program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.